0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is
1: dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
0: We've already made some content we've barely been in the studio for two and a half minutes. It's very cold in the studio. It's very cold in Mariella's studio as well.
3: I can't We, we use everything is content, including your absolutely disgusting old banana. <laughs> we put that on Instagram. We have done that, haven't we? Yes, it went on the Insta, Jane and Fee, if you follow us on Instagram. If you don't, why not? Um, yeah, I mean, I thought that if something rotted in a drawer in an office, then it would stink. Yeah, but it didn't. But this thing has just been
0: allowed to meet its end, unloved, uncared for. It's quite, it's worth looking at because it looks. Well, (laughs) it looks a little bit like something that shouldn't be in the British Museum anymore. Uh, But what I really like about it is the banana's completely and utterly shriveled away. And by the way, sorry, this is the emergency banana uh, that I kept in my drawer in my desk. It may actually, when did we move offices to that nicer one? About two or three months ago. Okay, so I think it's been there since then. The sticker on it has obviously just remained completely intact and then the banana behind it, is, it's a horrible thing. Uh, have a look if you'd like to. Um, uh, can I just do this email to start us off? Because uh, we have just reiterated on the Insta what our book club choice is for Sorry, this Sorry, I'm just being distracted by a screen showing a couple of hippos having
3: sex. Where? It's just, Where? <laughs> it's just there. What's that?
0: Ooh. <laughs> oh, hello. Oof, that was a good one. <laughs> oh,
3: sorry, it just came out of nowhere. Right, it's it's gone now. It's gone now. Thank oh, God. What, it's amazing what talk TV puts on. <laughs> we are trying to have a sensible conversation about a rotting banana and there's a couple of hippos going at it in our line of sight. Well, I, they're not in my
0: line of sight. Well, they were in mine. In my line of sight is currently a Keir Starmer exclusive. Right, okay, okay. Right. It's the
3: angle you approach these things from. Uh, Right.
0: So this comes from Marina, uh, who says she was at a Sydney Writers Festival last night and enjoyed an exceptional evening in the company of Trent Dalton who's the bloke who's written the book what we is reading for book club number three at the end of the talk i managed to unveil my way to the front of the book signing queue and asked him if he was aware that boy swallows universe has been selected as this month's book club on off air the immensely successful and internationally acclaimed podcast well he was completely gobsmacked he know. hasn't heard of Offair no oh. no in brackets he's from brisbane In joke for Australians. But he was flabbergasted that his book had been chosen and he couldn't believe that he had been granted such an honour. So Marina's advice to us is that we have to get Trent on the programme for a chat. Marina says he embodies all of the very best things that an interviewee needs to have. He's as garrulous as Geoffrey Archer. (laughs) <laughs> but even more charming than Ken Follett. How can that be? No, I can't believe yeah. that at all. Uh, Marina says, I came away from the night telling my companion that I would have married him there and then if he'd asked. He's an interesting, affable, lovable, optimistic man. And she goes on to say, uh, maybe he could be a late in life love treat for both of you two, mm. as he was for me. Well, how old is he? Well, I don't know. I think he's much, much younger than us. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> might come as a bit of a surprise yeah. to Trent then <laughs> it um, might but we will try and get him on uh, and we'll explain to him what Off Air the podcast is about and uh, thank you for mentioning that actually that's very kind of you Marina you're an agent out in the field
3: yes and we're very grateful to you for all your hard work just muscling to the front there and getting in with someone um, it takes us right back to the Cheltenham Literature Festival doesn't it uh, we're already gearing up for next year's visit <laughs> if we're fortunate enough to be invited she said, suddenly realising that our contract has run out by then. <laughs> so you just don't know in like, in showbiz. Careful you, of what you're promising. You just don't know. Uh, wasn't it lovely to be back in our own beds last night, though? It's only had one night away. It felt like, it felt yeah. like a much longer time. I don't well, know actually,
0: there's a... Uh, I'll try and find a re. there was a really lovely email actually about someone's dad who had the same problem about beds not facing the right direction. But do you want to do your one first? Well, and then, love, we've got to talk about the photograph of you with the enormous pepper pot
3: you in Yeah, I just don't understand you. that. I don't, I don't, I genuinely don't recall ever posing with a pepper pot. <laughs> Um, and I God knows I've done some stupid things. Um, we asked last week, actually, we had an interview uh, towards the end of our programme on Thursday, I think it was, uh, with Susanna Stevens about a hysterectomy and about the impact that a hysterectomy can have on you. I mean, not always, but in some cases. And this emailer says, Susanna is sadly correct. The current NHS guidance gives absolutely no cautionary words for childless women about to undergo this severe, what she describes as this severely life-limiting surgery, and I say what she describes because there may well be people listening who are about to have a hysterectomy, and the last thing I want to do is to to worry anybody. And I do know, I really appreciate that some women really find the operation helpful and restorative; it actually improves their quality of life. But this correspondent goes on to say the mental impact of my hysterectomy was absolutely overwhelming from the days after surgery and for years to follow. Pre-surgery, all I'd focused on was removing the horrendous physical pain. Post-surgery, I just recall being in a state of utter shock as to the suddenness and the total finality of my and now you can never have children status. That feeling remained with me, the worst decade being in my thirties when my friends were having children. Now at the age of 55, the last time I had to deal with the recurring and trying question, do you have children was just four days ago it took me many years to teach myself how to deal with that dreaded inquiry what i find shocking about the current nhs guidance is that it offers absolutely no guidance at all for childless women it doesn't even mention us it simply states some women who've not yet experienced the menopause may feel a sense of loss because they're no longer able to have children others may feel less womanly than before the guidance makes no distinction between women who already have children and those who don't
0: god do you know i find that phrase may feel less womanly than
3: before Gosh. terrifying it's, it's yes it's not it's not at all good um, that phrase i suppose they probably have had endless meetings about what to say they haven't done enough jane but i don't think i think you're right i think they have done enough um uh, thank you for all the very uh, interesting and informed uh, emails on this subject uh jack says um i um let me just get this straight i have so much to explain she says but in short in 2009 i had a hysterectomy i'm still recovering and i have to use a disposable catheter to empty my bladder why did i agree to it because i tried ablation and more besides and fibroids meant i flooded without warning I'm a teacher. And anyway, it's somewhat awkward. Yeah, I mean, flooding is is a horrible menopausal symptom that I, I just no woman should have to live with the possibility of flooding. I mean, it doesn't matter what you do for a living. But if you're a teacher, you just you can't have that. Prospect no it's, it's it's horrendous. No. Can
0: I just um, uh, just pop in my tanner's worth on that though there is some really really good medication available now for very very heavy periods and the possibility of flooding which you can take as a prophylactic uh, if you think that's going to happen to you and it is such a disabling thing uh, I would recommend um that you go and ask your GP about it. I don't think it's talked about enough. I don't think people know that you can uh, help yourself with uh, the heavy bleeding Mm. uh, by a perfectly, as as far as I know, medication that has very, very few side effects. I would look into it.
3: I'm sure there'll be a doctor listening who can put us um, right there. But um, Jack goes on to say that um, she would do it again, maybe, she says, but I'd insist on informed consent, not Dr. Google. I'd want a second opinion. Um, I have written a book about it, uh, she says. It's available on Amazon. It's called Totally Bladdered. I am now a patient expert at NHS, at the NHS National Bladder and Bowel Project. Uh, So clearly still very much living through that experience. And uh, Jack, thank you very much for emailing us. We do appreciate it. Um, There are others. I have to say that on the whole, um, obviously the people who have written in have had an experience similar to Susanna and they have not had a great time post hysterectomy. But clearly, there are many, many women who do find it helpful. Yeah. So I've just got uh, totally fair. Uh, Not everyone has a terrible time afterwards.
0: I'm in trouble, Jane. Uh, I've got into trouble with Louise uh, because Louise says, "Uh, I was jogging along uh, listening to your dulcet tones uh, when Fee said Lark Rise to Candleford was the most boring book ever. I screeched to a halt. How fast were you running? I beg to differ. It was my O-level English lit textbook in 1981 and my favourite book of all time. And we called our daughter, who's now 25, Flora, after Flora Thompson. I plead with you to reread this book and immerse yourself in the beauty and tranquillity of late 19th century rural North Oxfordshire. You may be surprised and even change your mind uh thanks from a sweaty runner in hampshire heading off again now uh, so louise i'm sorry about that do you know and I, I know that this means that you and i may not ever be best friends and i'm sad because i might miss out on a gorgeous opportunity but i just i just don't i just don't want to i don't want to read it again no, okay no i don't ever want to read the Mayor
3: of casterbridge again <laughs> no. uh,
0: so um but it's really difficult, isn't it, when you properly upset somebody by calling mm. a book that they love—they dearly, they'll close close to their, close, close <laughs> yeah. to their bosom. So I'm sorry, but that's just not—it's not, not going to happen. Uh, and I'm also in trouble. Um, I'm in trouble with somebody for being rude about foxes, Jane, because I describe foxes as vermin, and uh, and I do take your point. Uh, would you describe vermin as those creatures who pillage, poison, pollute, and profit from trashing the world? that's definitely us uh, i some of them i would actually call vermin but i just i'm not i'm not a big fan of the loving of foxes either no, so we uh, interviewed somebody, didn't we? Who was it we interviewed? Well, it's Zeb Soames. Oh yes, that's right. So oh, he's a lovely chap. Yeah, absolutely lovely chap. Lovely chap, Jane. <laughs> Sorry,
3: marvellous. I am something like a retired colonel. <laughs>
0: Essentially, I am. And he's—I <laughs> no, don't think you've retired yet, love. Uh, he's written a series of books about Gaspar the fox, uh, based on a, a lovely fox who he befriended uh, in his North London townhouse. Right. Oh, yes, that's right.
3: I remember you were laughing today because I'd said what good experiences I'd had at Luton Airport. <laughs> I don't know what it is about me. I just feel honour-bound to credit people when I've had good service at the moment. <laughs> Obviously, there's been this fire in the car park at Luton Airport. Uh, and, but um, no,
0: it makes a lot of difference to know it once was good. <laughs> I've
3: flown in and out of Luton a
0: number of times. <laughs> no,
3: not again. <laughs> not again. always found it to be rather an no! efficient Right uh, but that obviously um I, I we were both stunned weren't we um uh, Simon Calder was our guest on the on the radio show and he said that there were no sprinklers in the car park I know
0: at an airport at an airport quite a recently built car park yeah. at an airport So I didn't think that you were allowed to make any kind of a public building anymore without Sprinklers. I thought just, it was just illegal to just build something without sprinklers. Just completely bonkers. Um, this is an interesting email, and I wonder
3: whether it will re- resonate with uh, with other people listening. Um, uh, they say uh, they were listening to Emma Gannon, who was talking to us last week, and that conversation explained to me why, at the age of 55, I am struggling to understand some of my younger staff members. We all have a boss, don't we? Somebody has got to be accountable, don't they? My personal struggle at the moment is whether to retire early on the final salary pension that I'm fortunate my first boss pushed me into back in the 80s. I manage nearly 100 people and it is, as you might imagine, stressful, enormously stressful at times. I cannot sleep properly as my to-do list keeps going around in my head. I've got high blood pressure that the doctors are struggling to bring down and my eczema is going mad. I think my body is trying to tell me something. I don't have children, I do have a lovely husband who earns less than I do and we have a mortgage that won't be paid off until I'm 67. I think I want to walk out of my job now, take that early pension and find a lower paid, lower stressed job. I worry that I'd be better to keep working to take the higher pension I could buy or that I won't find a job and then we struggle or that I just get bored with a lower level job. My pension value now is enough to allow me to keep paying the mortgage, thankfully. Do any of your listeners have any advice? I can't be the only one feeling like this. Well, if you're having just a miserable time, and I wonder whether that person, if they do jack in the job that's making them feel so wretched, and they might actually find that opportunities do open up, better
0: opportunities than they might expect. Totally. So uh, when I read that email, and I'm glad that that you've read it out, I. I would be amazed if anybody says stay in the job that's making you ill. And I don't want to, um, uh, I don't want to overpersonalize this, but the funeral that I went to the other day, Jane, was an old friend from university who Mm -hmm. died too young. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a single person in that church and there was a really wonderful, wonderful turnout for him because he was such a nice guy. Uh, who would answer that email by saying, stay doing something that's making you stressed and don't go in search of new mm. opportunities to make you happy. Um, and it's not for me to, uh, you know, to, to talk any more uh, about him. That would be rude in case uh, other friends are listening. But uh, life is short. It don't is. Just, just find yeah. find something else. And Jane's absolutely right. You know, if you're okay financially, uh, then you might find all kinds of other things that you like doing more, hmm. or that you just are okay to do. Well, she's got, her pension's all right, so she's got
3: she's got twelve years to pay off the mortgage, which she can do on the pension. Yeah, I think it's a no-brainer. This, I
0: think, it's a total no-brainer. Um, I,
3: I would I would go for it, and also you will find something else. I bet you do. Um, you might just feel significantly weller and happier that can't be bad either and can i just say i have never managed anybody have you ever managed anybody no and it's a difficult thing which is why neither of us has ever done it um what we want to do certainly what i want to do is just sit here and carp i I don't want to take responsibility for anybody um and i've taken the easy way out in that respect um, and I hugely admire genuinely those people who do take responsibility. This this person has got well; they're looking after a hundred a hundred people.
0: It's not easy. Have you managed Jane Garvey? <laughs> Would you like to get in touch? There is with a the helpline, <laughs> action line number at the end of this podcast. But yes, I'd just say don't don't sit on that one for too long. No. If it's making you unwell. What's the point? What What would be the point? So I would embrace every single new opportunity. And, uh, you know, you're also l- actually lucky if you can pay your mortgage off with your pension. You are. And honestly, um, with the news the way it is at the moment, I,
3: I just think anybody who's wrestling with that sort of decision... Yep, seize the
0: day yeah. Seize the day Thank you lucky stars and, and go off into the sunset Let us know what you do next And please do let us know we would be intrigued to know uh, I found it Mary Kennedy said uh, I had to email when I heard you say That you couldn't sleep properly If your bed is facing the wrong way We mocked our dad Podrick for years As he said he was discombobulated Or experienced And I'm so sorry if I get this wrong Freud and Mara no. Can you tap into your Irish roots for that? Is it something to do with this see big don't see as he referred to it in Gaelic if his bed wasn't properly aligned uh, it had to be positioned north to south or he wouldn't sleep well his mum my grandmother was the same our childhood home vexed him for the 30 plus years we lived there as his bed was in the wrong position he died in April aged 98 and your mention of bed placements reminded me of my lovely dad oh. and his many foibles which in later years focused around recycling but that's an email for another day. Mary, it's an email we want to receive. I think we do want to receive we that. We really want to receive that. Uh, and thank you for getting in touch. It's funny, isn't it, how uh, just tiny things remind you of people who've gone and who would have known that a conversation about beds facing the wrong way, uh, you know, just brought back some happy So it, happy it had, to north, south. had to be
3: north-south. Had to be north-south. Right, OK. I'm yep. going gonna, gonna to use the, what do you call it, on your phone? Compass.
0: That's it, tonight, to find out whether I'm so mine has to face where the sun rises Mm -hmm. so it's got to face east well that's no that's just because that's how i'm used to it that's because i'm used to that at home so that's what i find weird when i go somewhere else and it's and it's not facing that way i can just tell jane i can tell right my internal compass tells me it's wrong right okay (laughs) um who'd want to go see with (laughs) fee (laughs) <laughs> very few people, I suspect. Yes. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for all of your comments about pegs. We are so informed wow. about <laughs> pegs, and I don't want to start another thing too soon. Uh, but Hannah says, while we're on pegs, can I mention bag clips now?
3: <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> well, it's funny because when we were in Cheltenham, I went to the Lakeland store. Did you? Did you go in?
0: No, you yes, didn't tell me was, you were what? going to the Lakeland store. Well,
3: I was. I was actually, to be honest, I thought I'd be. had come out staggering out with loads of purchases, um, but I. I kind of kept a, a firm, a firm grip on the Garvey purse, which, as you know, doesn't come out very often. <laughs> 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 um, but I was. There were a couple of um, you know those things you can have as um, to cover jars. You know, if you, yes. you yeah, or or yogurt pots, yes, lids. <laughs> that's, that's what they're called. They're called lids, yes. Uh, but it's weird because sometimes you will get yogurt that only has that, you know, the very splimsy lid. The foil thing. Yeah.
0: And that's yeah, I'm with you on that. What you meant to do, old. just kind of try and stick it back down I afterwards, don't,
3: which you, you never do, do no. you? So no. you
0: bought some disposable, no, some reusable lids. No, this anecdote is so interesting. I just considered it. I walked away. Oh. Where are the mounting hippos when you need them? (laughs) It wasn't Uh, a very long congress, that actually. No, no, hippo hippo fun. Uh, Can I throw this out uh, to our lovely listeners? Uh, I wondered, this comes from Sarah, I wondered if you could give me some advice on the dating front because I've run out of ideas. Online dating is just dire. 50% of matches instantly unlatch. 25% of them want to share nasty pictures and some of you actually get to meet of these 50% will cancel shortly before or just not turn up and the ones who do turn out to mostly have some serious personality issues. Uh, She goes on to say I've signed up to many courses dim sum, bread, pizza, macaron making, butchery, whittling, welding, basic plumbing and tiling. Has has she really done all of them? (laughs) Yes. Okay. So she's such a catch. Yes she really is. And while they've all been fun it's also mostly been women. My work is mostly women and my friends Friends, single males are single for good reason, and there's a face palm emoji. Please help, right, Sarah? We're going to chuck it out uh, because I think that is uh, something our listeners will be able to help you about. It would be nice to hear stories of where people have met yeah. and top tips on filtering out these serious personality. But I've got.
3: I'm in the, in a the spirit of transparency. Everything Sarah has said there is why I just don't do it. It just sounds such a tough place. And a bit, a bit like Shirley Ballas talking about the professional world of professional dance, I just think that's exactly what I fear about the online dating world. Mm. All of that, and the courses are a bit different because it's interesting when online dating fails, as it clearly has done for our correspondent. Um, often, you are told, "Oh, well, you need to go on a cor- go on a course." She has.
0: Yep, and it's all full of women who've gone on a course. Yeah, so the same kind of thing. You know, i um, absolute sympathy there. Yeah, but I think there are some little, uh, not tricks, because that sounds too kind of manipulative. I think there are ways that you can I- use online dating that do f- that can help you filter out the absolute weirdos and stuff. Well, let's see. What every- in fact, we've got two things we're throwing out. That's yeah. one of them. And
3: the other one is the advice for the person who's yes. stuck in a job that's making them feel really rank, but they could afford not to do it. Yeah, probably isn't a long one, that one, because we all know what we think about that.
0: We will welcome hearing uh, lots of people's experiences and views and stuff like that. Uh, can I just say, and there's no way of saying this without sounding really smug, but I did meet somebody really nice online dating. I was hoping you'd say that eventually. Yes, carry on. Yeah, no, I did. but um, uh, But I had exactly that experience beforehand and I had really got to that point where I just thought... <laughs> Just what is going on? Yeah. Uh, but I also I did meet a couple of really interesting men. No sparks or anything like that. Well, some terrible dates, Jenny. Well, I have heard about some of them, to be fair. Yeah. But when you say no sparks, I mean, what's wrong with electricians? <laughs> <laughs> I would absolutely have loved to to meet a spark. Well, anyway, uh, but I did I uh, I did meet somebody really lovely yeah. who was as trepidatious as of being online. I think that's the key, isn't it? As yeah. I was as well. Yeah, okay. So more more tales from that corner I think yeah. will emerge. Yeah. And can we have more encouraging
3: tales please?
0: I think we don't what we don't need
3: is a load of people telling us about their really shit dates <laughs> yes. because that's not going to encourage me or our correspondent there. No,
0: but also I think uh, you learn the language of the online dating sites and that's well worth knowing. And I mean any seriously Jane anybody who enjoys a long walk and a country pub lunch. Swipe. Why? oh it's just so boring that means that means someone who doesn't know what to do with a weekend and i bet i bet for every person who has literally just come in from a nice long walk and a long country lunch pub there are 765323 who've never done that but just think it sounds good mm. what about good sense of humor country pubs at sunday lunch times are not full of single people no, they're full of families having a really crap time. Exactly, they're yeah. lying. Uh, Matthew Chorley, have uh, we moved on? We have ready to go with this. Yes. Right, Matthew Chorley is our big guest. We could just interview him about his astoundingly well-awarded career. When I was reading this out earlier, Jane laughed at this bit as a radio host, which has seen him win nearly every award going in the industry. And he really has, Jane. I know he has. He started out in local journalism in Taunton, moved into the big time with the Press Association, the Mail Online, Independent on Sunday, and then the Times. And here he is now, launching himself onto the British public with his amusing Christmas offering. It's called Planes, Trains and Toilet Doors, 50 Places that Change British Politics. We talked to him earlier today, and he wasn't really a fan of being on the other side of the desk.
2: I'm a bit trepidatious.
0: Don't be trepidatious. Why would you be trepidatious? I don't like being on this
2: side of the desk. I bet you don't. I'm not in control.
0: I bet you don't, especially facing two acerbic older women. (laughs) Don't laugh. There's no need to do that. Why weren't you on your own programme today?
2: (laughs) Because I was on a secret mission, which will become clear in the coming weeks. Okay. It's a big launch thing out of my show, which I can't tell you about.
0: OK. Well, that's got the interview off to a rip-roaring <laughs> yeah. start. It's going to be very exciting. It will be good. Yeah. It was fun. Yes, no, I'm sure it will be. Yeah. I'm sure it will be. So, this is our chance to talk to you about being you and then talk to you about your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we start, though? What's your first political memory? Everybody has one. The moment that politics enters your childhood world.
2: I I think probably uh, the fall of Margaret Thatcher. I remember that being on the telly a lot. So, what I've been there, about seven. Seven six seven. I think I remember the Berlin Wall, but the trouble is, a lot of these things, the the news reels are repeated so much you forget. You know, are you misremembering that you remember seeing it the first time, or yes, you're later seeing it on. when it's referenced? But there was in definitely, I suppose, there was definitely that thing which I don't think uh, was well, certainly not in our house. The children don't have these days of there only being the news on. And so, if you wanted to watch the telly rather than stare at a wall, then you had to, you know, watch what was on the telly. You watch the news, and you sort of. You know, and, and particularly around that sort of time, the early 90s and the state of the economy and what was going on in budgets, so there was definitely that sense of like having the telly on to see what was happening in the news. And,
0: um, and when do you think you really got the political bug where it became a source of, of you know, real proper fascination? Yeah, it's weird, it's
2: weird because I didn't, I always wanted to be a journalist from a, like from, from seven or eight. Uh, we, we used to get the Mirror, the Daily Mirror in the house, and then we switched to the Western Daily Press local regional newspaper, Uh, but I didn't know any journalists. My dad's a plumber, you know, most of my family are farmers. I'd start newspapers at primary school and then at secondary school and then at college to the constant irritation of everyone else. But I don't really know where it came from. And although I was interested in politics, I don't think I thought someone from the Somerset levels would end up working in Parliament. So I thought actually, you know, there's a good job to be done working on regional papers. So that's sort of what I set my mm. sights on.
0: So what fascinates you about it? About politics? Yes. Is it the, the kind of the backbiting and the intrigue? Is it the possibility for real change through a process? Which bit?
2: I think the thing... Oh, this is going to sound pompous. Go for it. I just think it's really important. And I hope that what I do now on the radio and what I've done previously with White and and all that, Hooks more people into it and understand what's going on, because they should understand what's going on. I really hate to say, oh, politics isn't for me, and then proceed to talk about how there's potholes outside their house, or you know, their kids' schools rubbish, or you know, and like that. All of that is politics. So I think the the pompous. I mean, I also just love it, and I think the characters are. Entertaining, and I suppose it's a bit like if you're a, know, a f- football reporter, you just get into the soap opera on and off the pitch. So there's definitely an element of that. But the, my high-minded explanation is: I think it's really important, and I think most politicians, most of the time, are trying to do the right thing. Their big problem is that the right thing over here will also clash with what would have been the right thing over there, and they get to pick on that. But yeah, that's my. I want people. I want people to feel like politics is for them
0: where do you think we are now in our political world so uh, so keir starmer said yesterday it was just a tiny line in the speech it's by no means the biggest headline but that thing about how some people uh, really do want and are entitled to have politics go to the back of their lives yeah. you know to to remove itself from that foreground but is it possible for that ever to happen i mean if um, you know, if we would say that our political landscape is like a disco, if you put on a great big banging track, you get everybody up on the dance floor, you can't then play an album of panpipe music afterwards. And we've had this extraordinary time, both here in America, in Russia, these strong men, this enormous volume of politics. Does it ever really go back down?
2: I think it would be good if it did. I think it would be good for the public's mental health. It's not normal for people to have... Because And Brexit is what did it, I think. First of all, it happened in Scotland with the Scottish referendum there, where every single person in Scotland was forced to take a position on something. having Lots of them having consciously not taken a position because you can, you know, that's the default setting of everyone. And then the same thing then happened with the rest of the UK with with Brexit. And that entire period from 2016 basically to 2019 was completely ridiculous, where everyone was radicalised and nothing happened. When you look back on that period, nothing happened. The Theresa May premiership, was totally pointless in that we were no better off by the end of it than we were at the beginning of it. And yet, although she was slightly worse off because she had fewer MPs, but we felt that every single day it was critical and we had to get the gazebos on College Green and fire up, you know, get Laura Koonsberg in a helicopter and, oh, you won't believe what's happening. Oh, it's so crazy, isn't it, politics? And now there's a ho- there's actually now a whole generation of political journalists completely addicted to that. They, they, they're convinced that everything must at all times be... Uh, you know Brexit, late night votes, and Saturday sit- sittings, and prorogation and general elections, and and it just isn't. And we all just need to, to to sort of calm down and zoom out for it. So I think he's completely right. And actually, if and people will think this is ridiculous thing to say, if it was all a bit less radicalised, politicians might end up making slightly better decisions for the you know now the new phrase is the long term. But actually, you know, beyond tomorrow because they might actually get on and do their jobs rather than constantly fretting about what Mm. somebody's going to say on College Green or, say, on Twitter or a whole news cycle which is just taken up with sort of faux outrage.
0: But hasn't that state of chaos meant that the provocateurs just Mm. will thrive, they will, you know, find that space? And the people who have now got a kind of void and a vacuum in their life, I mean, we have seen what they've started to do. It's deeply unpleasant, it's quite often... Way off to the far right, and it's really nasty. But it's, you know, there is a space in our world for that now, massively.
2: I mean, it's interesting because given all the hullabaloo of the last, you know, both Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn were, of, you know, very different lots of ways, but of a particular type that generated really passionate reactions, pro and anti, from their supporters. The same as true of Brexit. We have now got a situation in Keir Star and Rishi where they're both much straighter. They would both, I think, call the other one essentially a decent person who, you know, is making decisions. They might say you're wrong about that, but they, you know, they didn't need to question each other's integrity in the same way. And it will so it will be very interesting having a general election where force in that tone. I mean it's interesting what happened over the party conferences where now Rishi Sinac having played the one the steady as you go candidate now wants to be the change candidate, while the change candidate is trying to tell you in Keir Tom is trying to tell you it's just steady as you go and I'm not going to start the horses. But I think your point about Keir is saying that there should be just less politics in people's lives. They want to know that stuff is being run properly in their interest, but they don't need to hear about it the whole time and they don't need to hear everyone f- arguing about it the whole time and forcing you to take positions constantly on, on absolutely everything.
3: So do you think some of those political journalists that you you think actually just became a bit too high on life when yeah. things were crazy, do you think they might now be too keen to conjure up a controversy out of nothing?
2: Yeah. I think it would be... I hope none of them are listening. I think it would be better if most of the lobby didn't tweet. Really? I think it would be better if senior broadcast political editors tweeted less because they are market-moving in their, oh, I'm just hearing this from one source, not questioning... Who you know, the motivation of the person mm. who's told them that, and there's a whole hour goes on. Though everyone else starts to do, I'm hearing this too, I'm hearing this too, but it's all from the same person, or often it's from someone else in government who's read it on Twitter, who's then passing off of their own to make themselves terribly important. Mm.
0: Yeah. And but, then it makes news night look thoroughly exciting on a day that's actually been quite. Yeah, but dull. there's nothing's
2: happened. And it's the overword you yeah, overused word of unprecedented? Oh, yeah. Which is so uh,
3: precedented, it's just not true. And
2: actually, it's one. You know, I thought when I was writing the book, the thing that I was going to learn from it was that politics has happened in lots of funny places, isn't that funny? And actually, the thing I discovered was everything has happened before. Literally, everything has happened before, <laughs> often better. You know, when we talk, oh, it's an extraordinary reshuffle. Nobody died during the middle of the reshuffle, as, as <laughs> has happened. You know, um, uh, and so yeah, I think it, I think it would be better if everyone just calmed down. Everyone a bit. Cal-
3: calm. Down Britain, but I do love your focus groups on your show, and this is where you talk to uh, swinging voters potentially. Yeah, ven- it varies, in. but yeah, yeah,
2: most of the time they're sort of well they tend to be just normal members of the public. I was
3: going to say, lest (laughs) lest we forget, people who couldn't tell you who the Shadow Chancellor was have got absolutely next to no interest. And Stig and Asma were talking about this this morning on Times Radio Breakfast, when they were asking people in Liverpool how many members of the Shadow Cabinet they knew. And they did know about Sir Keir Starmer. And one or two people knew that Angela Rayner had very distinctive hair. And that was about
2: it. I know, but I, I think where I might disagree with others is I don't think that's a bad thing. If people knew what Lisa Nandy and Hilary Benn were doing, that would be a bad thing for all concerned. You know, that's an entirely normal thing. People going about their daily lives, not concerning themselves right. with the whereabouts of Bridget Phillipson.
0: Hmm. I'm with you on that, actually, but we attach enormous uh, kind of credence, don't we, to knowledge about politics, yeah. which isn't necessarily understanding.
2: And actually, what's interesting is with the focus groups, in fact, we're doing one tonight, so we're going to have it on the show tomorrow, asking, you know, what, if anything, have you noticed from the party conferences? And, uh, Often they don't know who the individuals are. The analysis of ordinary mm-hmm. people is really smart. They can cut right to the nub of what's the matter with that person or why don't they just do this or um, uh, I'm just really feeling this about that policy. It's really, uh, it's really smart. And actually what's brilliant is every time we do it, some of our much-cherished Times Radio listeners get in touch and say, where do you find these morons? How can they not know... Uh, the, the Thangham Debonair's got a new job. Um, and, you know, we love those people. And that's why they listen to, the, to Times Radio, because we do a lot of politics and they like mm-hmm. to keep across current affairs. I think it's really important for us as presenters, but also for are uber-engaged listeners to remember that most people are not like that.
0: Yeah. Uh, we will come back and talk more specifically about your Christmas offering. Uh, we are in conversation <laughs> with Matt Chorley this afternoon. You sound like a
2: very large turkey.
0: <laughs> well, some people have said that. <laughs> <laughs> not, until, not
2: I'm not. afraid you walked into that one. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it. Let's hope it's not. The train is now
1: approaching. Junction and platform. Passengers... Please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door.
0: A little bit of inbreeding is going on here at Times Radio, but in a very worthy and entertaining cause because uh, Matt's new book, first book, in fact, is called Planes, Trains and Toilet Doors, 50 Places That Changed British Politics. So it's a great title, but it also does really explain what's inside the book, doesn't it? So I don't need to ask you. No, it's very straightforward. It is,
2: it is a collection of places. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: but it goes back in a bit of history and uh, yeah, lots like that, of things.
2: Getting to 50, just places that I'd been to. It was tricky. It was hard. So okay. I ended up going quite a long way back.
0: Fair enough. Uh, one of the places that you revisit uh, is the helipad at the Don Valley Bowl in Sheffield, uh, the precise date being Wednesday, the 1st of April, 1992. Uh, now, why is that important?
2: So this was the Sheffield rally ahead of the 1992 election, about a week before the 1992 election. And it was basically the Labour Party, being led by Neil Kinnock, were so confident of winning the 1992 election, beating John Major, they held a victory rally a mere week before their victory. Or oh, oh, as it turned out, uh, not. And uh, he arrives in a red helicopter that lands on the field outside the uh, Don Valley Bowl. And all of this is projected onto big screens while inside, thousands of Labour people who have been busting in from all around are watching, essentially, I think it's the closest we've ever got to a full-blown American-style ticker tape Parade. The Shadow Cabinet are led in as the, the the next government of Britain. There are people playing musical instruments. There is, um, uh, what's his name from uh, uh Simply Red? Mick Hocknell appears via video link, filling in his postal vote, singing Something Got Me Started, while praising the prospect of a Labour government investing in skills.
0: It's a, t- it's a terrifying It goes image. On,
2: and on and on, and I've re-watched loads of footage from it. And... Just when you think it can't get weirder, like up pops Alan Rickman and there's Emma Thompson, and uh, there's a there's someone from everyone. There's a, there's an opera singer, there's a brass band. They've got the full spectrum covered. And it's where famously uh, Neil Kinnock gets up, finally gets up onto the 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 podium and declares, "We're all right." Although he insists, <laughs> there's a big argument about what he actually said. He thinks he says, "Well, all right," which is from an old skiffle record, uh, apparently. But it gave the impression. That uh, we're all right, we're gonna win, we've got this one in the bag, it's all good. And actually, he says back then, people reported it as being all, you know, quite sensible. It was only afterwards people said it was a bad idea. That's not true. Sure. I've looked at lots of newspaper cuts at the time. I think even the front page of The Guardian said it was a bit, a bit much. <laughs> And subsequently, obviously, lots of people said, well, maybe that's why they lost the election. It was sort of hubris and they got uh, carried away. I actually think, in terms of the how I think it changed politics, I don't think it probably made that much difference. I think it turned out that probably the polls were wrong all along. Uh, I think the thing it did was stopped our slide towards the Americanisation of political hmm. events.
0: But also, don't you think it has changed subsequent uh, Labour speeches? And and Sir Keir Starmer's speech had to stay... The right side of what happened there. Yeah, exactly didn't right. It's
2: it, it shaped that.
0: Even though the polls are so much. Exactly right.
2: No one wants to fall into that trap, and no one, no one wants to look. Have all the balloons, and you know, you know, the, the worst we get these days is sort of five people with a t-shirt over their shirt and tie, holding a placard they've just been given by central office, and like that's it. it the Tory party conference, you know, a couple of weeks ago, they were all given their signs because the last thing we want is anything spontaneous. Uh, happening. So I think, yeah, the fact that we haven't gone full-blown sort of America... You know, the Republican and Democratic conventions are insane. Uh, So I think that's how it changed politics rather than actually changing the outcome of the election. But you're completely right that that every Labour... Labour leaders in particular, I think all party leaders, don't want anyone saying it's like the Sheffield rally because whether or not it lost in the election, that's the perception. You don't want to go down that road.
0: Yeah. Have you been to some of those big American rallies? No. No. Would you like to go? Does American politics interest you?
2: Uh, a bit, not as much as some other political journalists who think that knowing the ins and outs of Orange County North. Of Super Tuesday. Yeah, Super Tuesday and all of that is, you know, the way to carry on.
3: You don't want to be stuck at the Christmas party with the Super Tuesday. Do you know what, what? as soon
0: as anyone mentions a caucus, I'm off. (laughs) Absolutely off. Uh, Right, Should we pick another one? I really, really love the first line uh, into uh, it's number nine in your 50 places and we're in Margaret Thatcher's bathroom in Brighton and you say a piece of paper saved Margaret Thatcher's
2: life. Yeah, I was quite surprised actually how many things happened in bathrooms. Uh, which which had an impact on uh, on politics. So the, the, the piece of paper, so this was in the uh, October 1984, the Tory party conference was happening in Brighton. Uh, Margaret's actually been sort of going around, glad-handing and all that, but actually really fretting about her speech. Every spare moment she got, she was working on her speech and was stayed up in her room until sort of two o'clock in the morning, was about to go to bed. She finally sent the, her sort of secretaries off. And then uh, Robin Butler, who was her uh, principal private secretary, said, "Oh." Just before you go to bed, just before you head off into the bathroom, she's got one more bit of paper for you to look at, which I think was it something to do with Sheffield Flower Festival or something. Uh, it's something pretty innocuous. But she sort of turned and walked back into the suite at the moment that the IRA bomb went off in, uh, in the hotel. And it had she been in the bathroom, you know, if you look at the photos of the bathroom, there's broken glass everywhere and the, part of the ceiling coming... And it is incredible just how close the IOA got to killing the Prime Minister and actually large numbers of the cabinet. And it was all basically luck the the where the bomb had been planted higher up in the in a room higher up. If the chimney stack had just dropped the other way, it would have it, that would have completely changed the course of of political history. And I think sometimes we forget the counter because something didn't happen because they didn't, you know, clearly they, it was four or five people did die, but not you know, a senior member of the government in uh, in Margaret Thatcher. And had that happened, everything that happened afterwards would have been completely different. Yeah.
0: Uh, so we were listening, obviously, to Sir Keir Starmer's speech. Gosh, he's getting a lot of mentions today, isn't he? We must mention something from Rishi Sunak's world in a second. Uh, we were listening uh, yesterday when the protester mm. came on stage and because, actually, because we couldn't see the pictures, uh, we were... We both had the sudden thought, what has happened? I was exactly the same as you. Might it be the very worst thing that's happened? I was driving home, and so I was
2: listening on the radio exactly the same as you, and that, you know, there's bloke shouting and then the sort of the thud and then the silence, and you just don't know what's what's happened no Um,
0: and it did strike me that that that's still that is still the power of radio isn't it you are absolutely in a moment and when i saw the pictures it didn't mean as much at all because it's bloke there with Mm. glitter and you think oh you know he's a bit of a twit uh can i do just one more and then i'm sure jane has got a couple that she wants to flag up nick ryden's toilet in edinburgh
2: yeah so this is the answer to uh planes trades and toilet doors so when I first started thinking, actually the the, the book basically was born out of my listeners because there was a Barnard um, English Heritage Press release and said they'd had a twenty percent increase in visitors to Barnard Castle after Dominic Cummings went there, which is a lot of people walking around making eye-tice jokes. There's nothing there. There's not a statue or anything. <laughs> and uh, so we started talking on the show about other places that political nerds might go on holiday. And uh, then it sort of spawned into the idea of doing the book. And whenever I mentioned to anyone, they said, oh, you must be doing Granita. You must be doing Granita. It's the restaurant in North London where Tony Blair and Gordon oh, Brown yeah. went and struck their deal. Uh, although anyone involved in it says that that's not where they struck the deal at all. It was basically a sort of Tony Blair showing off thing, taking Gordon Brown to a restaurant, a slightly trendy North London restaurant, where uh, he would feel like a fish out of water. But at that point, they'd already agreed what was happening. And uh, according to other people in the restaurant at the time, there was much more fuss about the fact that um, Susan Tully, who played Michelle from EastEnders, was in the restaurant, rather than Gordon Brown and well, Tony Blair. Fair
3: enough. She's now a great TV director. Well,
2: yeah. yeah. Well, there she was. She was there unwittingly when history turned out wasn't being made. Because after John <laughs> Smith died in 1994, all the conversations that Gordon Brown and Tony Blair had were in Scotland because they were, you know, they were waiting for the funeral and all that sort of thing. And you could tell which way the wind was blowing because all the meetings happened in the houses of friends of Tony Blair. So it's like, Gordon, do you have another chat about who's going to run for leader in my friend Nick's house? So they go to his friend Nick's house. Uh, Nick is a property developer. He's doing up his house. He leaves them with a bottle of whiskey and a takeaway menu and says, I'll go to the pub and let me know when, when you're done. So they're having the chat and Gordon goes to the bathroom and Tony Blair is sitting there and he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits and eventually the landline starts ringing because it's 1994. And the answering machine kicks in and Tony Blair thinks, well, not my house, i just let the answering machine take it. So he says, all oh, right, it's Nick, you know, leave a message. And then his voice comes booming out of the answering machine. Tony, it's Gordon. I'm locked in the toilet. <laughs> and Gordon Brown was locked in the toilet. And he'd got a mobile phone, uh, but Tony Blair didn't. Tony Blair didn't have one until he left Downey Street in 2007. And uh, so Gordon Brown had been locked in the toilet for 15 minutes, phoning anyone he could think of to try and get the number... Of
3: the landline. Of the landline.
2: That's pretty. And uh, unlike Granita, Tony Blair doesn't mention Granita at all in his memoirs. Both Gordon Brown, it's one of the few things they agree on, both Gordon Brown and Tony Blair tell this story in their memoirs. And Tony, In Tony Blair's version, he says he goes upstairs to relieve him from the bathroom and says, I'll only let you out if you pull out of the leadership race. And that night was the night that they agreed that Tony Blair was going to uh, go for the leadership. Gordon Brown would step back, but they would sort of go together. He would be shadow chancellor and... Uh, and that was how history was made. It's just superb.
3: It's a wonderful, wonderful anecdote. I don't know where to turn because I want you to talk about William Huskisson, but I think that's a bit nerdy and a little bit niche, although he was Britain's first ever rail victim.
2: Yes, he was a former Cabinet Minister uh, on the first steam train going from Liverpool to Manchester. The train stopped to refuel. He got out to go and have a chinwag with the Duke of Wellington to hope, Wellington, he, hope yeah. to get back in the Cabinet. He accidentally got run over by Stevenson's rocket, uh, there was an argument on the train about whether or not to continue this journey on to Manchester. The Prime Minister thought they should cancel it. The railwayman <laughs> thought it would be terrible PR for the railways if, mm. if they cancelled, so they carried on. And actually, he's credited with making a success of the railways because far more people heard about this newfangled thing. Thanks to his death. Thanks to his death.
3: There you go. Um, also, you bring horribly back to life just the dizzying... And frankly, rather triggering episode of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. He finds out he's being fired on the A4, travelling up the Great West Road uh, in the Chiswick area of West London. But also, it was that press conference that Liz Truss
2: gave, where she only answered four questions. I
3: mean, that was they, they were troubling times,
2: weren't they? Yes. (laughs)
3: <laughs> and there we have there's it.
2: No, uh, there's no getting away from it. I mean, I think, because everyone says all oh, politics are mad and another way. I think the system worked. The system worked with Boris Johnson. You know, he was found out and he was removed. The system worked with Liz Truss. Do you
0: ever? She went very quickly. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: yeah. Do you ever miss Mr Johnson at all? No. Genuinely, because he did provide day after
0: day of content. I'm amazed that you've asked content. that. Because it's usually a terribly triggering thing for you, maybe.
2: you <laughs> don't stand outside for 10 minutes. <laughs> Which is actually the weird thing, is when I was doing the stand-up shows and the uh, uh McCollum snap. people said, oh, I bet you love Bob Johnson. He was like, no, it's really hard to write a joke about him because he is he, he, he was the living joke.
0: Planes, trains and toilet doors, 50 places that change British politics is out And we can we be genuine just for a second? This is a great Christmas gift for
3: somebody who likes politics, not, you know, not in a, they don't just, they don't stay up for news night, but, you know, they just, they like to dip their toe into, I don't know, just the
0: quirks of our wonderful political history there's yes, some cracking I agree. stories in there and they're very well told and you can just do a couple of different chapters every evening or you know whenever it is that you're reading it and it's a lovely book it's beautifully illustrated and you know Matt's funny he can write funny stuff as well as knowing all, this, all the facts he's quite funny I do want to encourage you. <laughs> no, okay you're right yeah, you're right okay. It's definitely quite funny right yes Um, we love hearing from you all Jane and Fee <laughs> <laughs> Time Star Radio I don't know why I paused so long there. Uh, and you can follow us on the Insta and we will uh, put up more kind of reminders about the Book Club book on Insta. And if you want to see my dried banana, that's where you should go. If you want to see a shriveled banana, <laughs> that's where you need to go. Good evening. Well done for getting to the end of another episode of Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover.
3: Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is
0: Henry Tribe. And don't forget, there is even more of us every afternoon on Times Radio. It's Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5. You can pop us on when you're pottering around the house or heading out in the car on the school run or running a bank. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you can join us again
3: on Off Air very soon. Don't be so silly.
0: Money, go bank.
3: I know, the lady don't listener. A lady listener? I know, kind
1: of, sorry.